From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers in the same music journalism from Death by Clickbait. I'm your host, Ryan Gore, a writer here at Central Source uh, for Football Paradise and for Squiggly Animation Magazine. Joining me are two friends of mine who also happen to be talented journalists and other things. <laughs> One of those people is Josh Moradira. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ryan? I'm very good. Why don't you let the people know what's going on in your life professionally? Yeah. I sometimes moonlight as a music journalist, but I'm an artist manager and event producer, and we're coming off of a high. We just hosted our first live concert series called Jewel Tones in Brooklyn in May, and now we're taking it around the world. So maybe we'll see you in a city you live in. That would be very nice. Please come to Birmingham, because the trains (laughs) aren't working and I'm stranded here. Um, Also joining me is Brandon Hill. How are you, and what is going on in your life? Oh... A lot, a lot. I'm doing great. Um, this summer, I'm work- actually working on a major capstone project for my master's degree in journalism, which is exciting. It's a multimedia story about um, the state of unions and union activity and membership growth in Boston. Uh, lots of really exciting stuff going on with that. And yeah, other than that, just writing, podcasting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> love it <laughs> shout out to people with master's degrees they tend to be better than other people in my experience it's um, the it's, it's the it's the debt it for it forces you to be better oh yeah you just have to be um, so today we have pieces about streaming addiction about snoop dog and about a mythic japanese psych rock band but before we get into that let's talk about what we've been listening to jashima Good. What have I been listening to? I've been listening to my friend Tarun Nayar's new mushroom music. He plugs different living flowers, living flowers, plants, mushrooms into synths. And based on the water and the movement in them, they emote different music. And I'm in Canada right now because they just had a festival here. And so we got to plug ourselves in and see what we sound like, which was pretty magical. So he's actually got an album um, out of all these sounds made from things we find in nature. That's been pretty groovy. That sounds like an article I would bring to the podcast. Like, (laughs) right can You can, you can, you can find them. There's a ton. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Go for it. And I think Stevie Wonder did that, right? That was in an article we brought to the podcast not long ago. Don't know if any of you are on that, but I'm pretty sure that was the thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, for me, I wanted to do this segment because it's been ages since I've been able to do it on the podcast. So I actually have things to say for the first time because <laughs> usually I'm just like, yeah, Mitski again. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to give a quick rundown of some things I've been listening to in the last, uh, this year, basically. So, first of all, the Turning Red soundtrack and score by Ludwig Jonsson. It's amazing. It's, like, my favourite Pixar score. Like, they usually get Michael Giacchino to do their stuff, but he's, like, a classical composer. And none of those scores really stick with me, but Ludwig went for this, like, New Jack Swing kind of thing on this uh, project, and it's awesome, and the film's great. Uh, Also, the Kiki's Delivery Service um uh, soundtrack is amazing. Joe Hisaishi is a genius. Uh, what else? Things I should have said a year ago. An EP by Otis Mensa. Mm. It's Otis. It's great. It's um, his own production for the first time. Moving away from the sample stuff, going towards something a bit darker and a bit more open. Mike Eagle, I think, um, is an influence I picked up on. And keep an eye on What's Good with Charlie Taylor on the Fifth Element Podcast Network this coming week for some more Otis Mensa content for sure. Um, <laughs> um, Quede Chris, Death Fame, is probably, it's up there with one of my albums of the year. Uh, Quede kind of explores this idea of. Um, the the fame you receive once you die being 
higher than the fame you get when you're alive and the recognition that you get and he explores that in a really cool way the Kendrick album I haven't listened to as much because some of the stuff on that album still makes me uncomfortable so just platforming abusers and the homophobia and transphobia and Mickey's <laughs> gonna send me a longer message after I said this but it's still not clicking with me that much but I did enjoy like the one listen I had without all that stuff and the last thing I want to shout out real quick is the Raven Lanay album Hypnos which is my album of the year so far it's a very be- very beautiful thing, and you should listen to it. Brandon, I'm tired of talking. Absolutely. Um, Kiki's Delivery Service soundtrack, actually, one of my buddies like just found the vinyl for that. Um, so that's type. And also, I wrote a blurb about Before Venice um, from that Otis Mensa EP that I just mm. am now remembering because you mentioned it, and now I want to find something to do with that blurb. And I've been working on a thing for my newsletter, um, <clears throat> which is actually I've been listening to uh, Melt My Eyes, See Your Future by Denzel Curry, one of my favorite albums of the year. Because uh, I'm writing a blurb about it for my newsletter, and then also, um, the name is escaping me, but the the Saba album as well. Few good things. Few, few good, good things. Few good things. Yeah, well, I've been listening to that because I'm writing a blurb on it. Um, running back to FKA Twigs too at the behest of my friends here at Central Sauce. Yeah, and it's definitely like clicking with me more um, the more that I sort of re-listen to it. But other than that, like. A lot of the indie stuff, too. Um, Chris Patrick and Dende have both dropped, you know, a few singles. Um, Chris Patrick's EP, I definitely recommend checking it out. Really good three-pack of songs, like each one um, pretty different, and he's sort of doing his thing on those. Really good stuff. I didn't realize we were going into our entire discography collection. I gave such <laughs> She wants to talk about something other than, other than mushrooms now, okay? No, no. <laughs> you can go ahead. It's fine. Let's move on. Yeah, sorry. I just hadn't been on the episode for a while and I needed to just get all that out. Okay, so <laughs> moving on to our first piece. It comes from Pitchfork and Jeremy D. Larson and it's the article that I brought and it's called The Woes of Being Addicted to Streaming. So yeah, I found this to be a really fascinating perspective on the streaming issue because I think even on this podcast we brought a lot of pieces mm-hmm. about streaming, the effect it has on artists but this is one of the few that focuses on what we lose as listeners and the effect on us, you know. The artist's perspective is probably the most important aspect of this whole thing because they're the ones who are trying to make a living of it, off of it. And I feel like um, the easier it is for artists to make a living off their music, the better the music ecosystem is in general. But Jeremy, but that is storied now, that is documented. So Jeremy kind of looks at what it's doing to us like this embarrassment of digital riches is doing to like people constantly consuming streaming. And I think as music lovers, we kind of know the answer. Like as people who are old enough to have had CDs and who still collect vinyl, you know, it's that tactile human storied nature of music. You know, you can look at an album and say, okay, I have a story behind that thing. Um, Yeah, so as Jeremy says in the article, uh, everyone's story of discovering music is the same now, you know. But I don't think I've ever come across a piece that explains that so well for someone who isn't already a music lover. Like, we get that already straight away. But I think what Jeremy does so well is break down why that's important, you know. Why, as a someone who doesn't really care about music as much as we do why is it important that you can't feel the music anymore why is it important that there's not a human connection to how you receive your music why is it important to have a story about being put onto an album by one of your friends or stumbling across an album in the record store because the cover looks unique or something like that right why is it important not to have an algorithm just spit out an album for you to listen to that fits within the walls of what you're confined to as your your taste. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's definitely what I gravitated towards, um, and why. And he also touches on the idea of like music being an ad for tech companies. It's a way for them to constantly have you connected to them, always online, always providing money to them every time you want to spin an album um so yeah it's a quite layered piece there's a lot that goes into it um but yeah i'll leave it there for you guys to go into then so uh brandon what did you think of this one 
Yeah, like um, like you said, like this is a subject that we've covered a few other times on the podcast, like streaming payments, um, you know, streaming royalties. Actually, I think Pitchfork consistently um, does a great job covering this. But one of the things I liked particularly about um, this piece by Jeremy Larson, uh, who I believe is the one of the editors at Pitchfork, reviews editor maybe. Um, but one of the things I liked about it was the sort of personal essay components, right? This is a story that's most often told very strongly with like numbers and data. You know, it's very much like here are the fractions of pennies you get for streaming payments. Here's how much the label's taking. Here's how much gets to the artist. Here's how many streams you have to have to make a dollar. You know, it's a very, uh, numbers conversation, but bringing this personal essay component, um, as Ryan said, that focuses on the impact of this uh, environment to the listener really sort of makes those those numbers more penetrable by um, relating it to directly like how it affects you. And it also allows Larson to sort of go back and forth almost in a way like he doesn't have to be super direct um, and super like hard news style writing. You know, here's the lead. Here's the nut graph. Like, here's the conclusion. Um, and one example of that sort of back and forth dialogue that he even has with himself in the essay um, is this quote here I'm going to read where he says, I feel like a little bit of a hack every time I open the app. But I also understand that for the majority of subscribers, this simulation of a beautiful, vibrant, limitless music industry is possibly all they could ever want. Right. So it's it's the duality of it. It's the way that he sees both things and he's sort of reflecting on you know, the negative impact, but he's also, you know, thinking about the perspective of um, how it can be beneficial to the majority of music listeners who don't consume music as actively and I think intentionally is even the word he uses like in the analysis. And even, you know, him being older and sort of looking back and reflecting on how his music consumption habits have changed due to streaming um, is an interesting perspective to have because we now have these younger generations who don't have that sort of looking back on how music used to be feeling, right? Um, a bulk of music, like consumption, is by younger people. I mean, that's just in the numbers. Younger people listen to more music. Um, they buy more music. They stream more music. And now we have like the youngest generations, the most active consumers of music, never experienced this, you know, physical walking into a CD store um, purchasing a record, you know, I mean, records are sort of resurging, but they never had that as like their primary means of consumption. And even like when I reflect back on my own sort of music consumption habits, like it's less walking into a store to buy a CD and more like copy pasting a URL from YouTube into MP3 rocket, right? Which doesn't exactly have, you know, that charm um, that Larson talks about buying the physical music as well. But but that sort of it's interesting how that that has changed and how this older person's perspective looking back on it um, informs the situation in a really human way beyond just the numbers. Yeah, I really like the idea you picked up on the start there, like the amorphous structure of this article. You know, um, it shouldn't work for a lot of people and Jeremy makes it work really well uh, with the way he goes into the personal essay type stuff and then to like the history of streaming and back into the personal essay. It's really cool. Yeah, Jashima, what did you think of this one? I think it's constructed in the way that people that love listening to music like we do would talk about it, right? We'd talk about the intentionality. It's hard to center our experience without in some capacity acknowledging the artist. It's hard to not address what's happening in the world with tech. But I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast. I think the most dangerous thing in the world is too much accessibility when we haven't given minds the knowledge and tools to consciously consume. Because when we talk about accessibility and music and anything, really, it's always through a lens of making it more equitable and easier for different communities to access. And I'm in full agreement with that. But if we're not able to process that knowledge and constructively utilize that access, then it just becomes a really dangerous addiction effectively. But my favorite sort of paragraph in here that I think sums up the entire piece and the different things he's touching on is, the cognitive dissonance occurs when people in the intentional group, people like me, try to tell people in the passive and auxiliary groups how to listen to music. I know the global financial devaluation of music is irreversible, 
And there are only a small percentage of total music listeners for whom the phrases buy from brick and mortar stores or support Bandcamp Fridays means anything. But what I fear is that the streaming era is actually writing the same listening histories for those who can't be bothered with intentional listening, all exclusively based on proprietary algorithms that seem like a way to discover and discover music, but in fact, act more like a feedback group, feedback loop. And I think that's really important because something we don't talk about as consumers of music is that our discovery is entirely based on our data and how we're interacting with effectively a tech company, as opposed to what 20 years ago may have been a recommendation from someone you really like, but probably don't have the same sonic and cultural exposures to. And I think that loss of discovery is something that happens when there's too much accessibility. I catch myself on Spotify all day. And 98% of the reason I'm on it is not to look at the artists we manage, not to look at their metrics and their locations, but it's because I'm consuming a podcast or listening to music or looking at other playlists. And they tend to all be one big echo chamber. Um, so I thought this was really beautifully written, but also a really important piece to center. It's not always about the industry and the artists, right? As, as important and as much as I care about artists getting paid, art is also for the consumer. And so we have to talk about what it does to the psychology of the consumer. Yeah, I, I was just going to hone in on what you said, too, about the algorithm thing, because um, that's a major component of this piece. And especially with how the modern bulk of music listeners now receive music um, is sort of through this algorithm feeding chain of like, oh, you like this, so you're going to like this. But one of the main points that he makes is that the, the algorithm, the things that it's going to relate it to aren't just like the most similar or the most inspired, but the most popular, right? It's like what everyone else is listening to, you know, so it assumes that you're going to like it as well um, because it's what everyone else is listening to and it's close to what you're listening to already, which is also what everyone else is listening to. Um, <clears throat> and so what that does is it eliminates some of those more or less, less algorithmic connections that artists make um, to other music, because like, like here, hold on, I'll just find and read the paragraphs. For instance, Spotify's radio station for Ludacris's What's Your Fantasy doesn't link to any Outkast songs, even though I watched Ludacris open for Andre 3000 and Big Boy when that song was released in 2000, and both acts are from Atlanta. Is Spotify aware that Big Boy is a huge Kate Bush fan? Does Spotify know that singer-songwriter John Darnielle or the Mountain Goat is a metalhead? So when you have an algorithm and any, you know, any, and this goes for beyond music and streaming, this is algorithms on social media and everything like that. Like algorithms are a lot of times seen as this sort of like input output thing, right? Like you throw a bunch of numbers in and you get an output that's correct and accurate. But what you miss in an algorithm is that algorithms can't consider anything outside of what you put into it, right? So all those things that the company doesn't value for the output that they're looking for get thrown out of the algorithm. All these like connections that these artists have to the music that inspired them and inspired um, the styles of their music and the art that they want to create, those inputs aren't in the algorithm. When you have a human sort of feeding these things, right? Think of the guy in the record store and you go in and you're like, oh, I'm looking for something like this. The guy in the record store is able to pull things from outside of the algorithm, like outside knowledge to make you a recommendation, right? When you eliminate the guy from the record store and you walk in and you just punch in what you're looking for into a computer and it only pulls up the output that's directly like from those numbers, right? It takes out sort of the exploratory element and it takes out a lot of things that aren't beneficial to what that end result is is to just keep you listening keep you streaming right it, it eliminates like all that uh, input yeah i think you know I, I may or may not have once referenced this but when we talk about data and what an algorithm is using they're also like the, the things that they're doing at streaming companies to engage us as users are not revolutionary they're just consolidated and I say this a lot when I talk about rap caviar as the example, right? Literally nothing revolutionary happened besides what looked like a Canva template of moving visuals telling you that you consumed this artist in X year. Nothing else happened. But the ability to consolidate that much data was only possible when that many users were on a single platform. And I think that that 
ownership of saying you listened to someone early or the feeling of being an early adopter and being able to share what your point of discovery was for that artist is a huge play on nostalgia. And we used to have those experiences every single day, right, when sharing music with one another. I would have never in my algorithmic echo chambers come across mushroom music, but here we stand <laughs> and I listen to it while I'm drinking coffee or tea. Um, and that's because someone I know made it, right? And so that's my point of discovery and exploration. And then they were in a band that made different music. So it's cool to see the, the differences and similarities between their artistic styles. Then there's a whole narrative that develops there. But part of the reason I picked the piece about Snoop Dogg and um, sort of crypto and NFTs is actually not to talk about cryptos and NFTs, but to talk about what happens when we start bringing things back to the artist and an audience needs to engage with something unfamiliar or different in order to start consuming music again and attaching their own narrative to it. So I actually think there's going to be a lot of parallels. Yeah, to quote uh, Marty Bird from Ozark, um, <laughs> one person is unpredictable, but a thousand people doing the same activity a thousand times is perfectly predictable, right? I counter you both Absolutely. with a question. What would be mm -hmm. your ideal way to be exposed to new music in, in this landscape? Hmm. That is a good question. I don't actually know, because that's the thing, right? I think this piece is very sympathetic to people who appreciate convenience. I think that's something that Jeremy says himself, right? That line about feeling like a hack every time he opens, every time he opens the app. But it's a matter of convenience, isn't it? Um, but I think a lot of that, the answer to that question is about removing the idea of convenience and being like, okay, this it isn't about me at the end of the day. Or is it? What's the healthiest way to actually do this? You know? So it's somewhere between... I don't know. Actually, I've completely lost what I was trying to say because I started <laughs> thinking new things. <laughs> Brandon, you go ahead because I'm still thinking again. I really, really like sort of almost like the discovery format that we kind of had at Central Sauce. Like I like people like especially indie um, and like underground artists sending me stuff to listen to. And then when you find like the gems in that, like that's a really fun way to discover music. And it gives me like a, I don't know, like almost a more like connection to the music because I, it felt more personalized in a way. And also um, discovering music through like reading, like my friend's writing. Um, specifically like reading some of the stuff that Ryan has wrote about Quelle Chris um, and like Milo completely like opened me to the whole art rap sphere. And now I really love like so many like great art rappers and stuff like that. And I never would have made those connections if I hadn't read some of that stuff and like thought more about it. And that being sort of my like pathway to that music. So that doesn't really, I guess, answer like what would be my ideal way to find music in a streaming atmosphere Maybe sort of like what AudioMac does where they host like interviews and pieces like within the streaming service itself. But I also see how that's not like desirable for like the bulk of music listeners who are listening in more of that like sort of passive background way as well. I see both of those things. I think Ryan's more answer about eliminating convenience to some capacity, but yours being like through network discovery of music that's being submitted to us. But when I asked you the question, I thought about it from a lens of like, what if we weren't the people that we are? Um, <laughs> like, how would I, how would I, like if I didn't have Central Sauce and Brown Girl and Ode and all these things, how would I? And I realized I'd look up because I haven't been home in New York in a few months, but my favorite thing used to be to look up because there's still people in communities that rely on posters and flyers and po mm. putting collateral up in their communities to discover things like media. They all have access to the internet, but they use it for more literal work things, right? Or school. And a lot of those communities still center around physical experiences together, which obviously in this day and age is challenging for a number of reasons. But I wonder if I haven't been looking up and if cities are still posting to some degree flyers and festival promotions and things like that, that might expose me to someone that I wouldn't have found otherwise. Yeah. Even yeah, just I like that's... those organic sort of spheres of discovery, like within communities too. Yeah. I think we're all kind of talking about the loss of 
the magic of discovery and the loss of out the outside world when we're consumed by streaming, whether that's like movies, whether it's games, whether it's music, whether it's books of the kindlification of everything in in the books for you know um it's it's happening all the time and it's all keeping us from actual real life and i guess what i'm trying to say is touch grass but um. (laughs) (laughs) i guess what i'm trying to say is touch grass Uh. um that's my ideal way to consume music uh cool so, that was The Woes of Being Addicted to Streaming by Jeremy D. Larson for Pitchfork. So, the next article was brought to us by Brandon Hill. Why don't you go ahead and talk to us about it? Of course. Touch Grass would have made a great alternate title for that Pitchfork story as well. (laughs) Okay, so my story is in NPR, um, and it is titled The Fuzz, Feedback, and Folklore of a Mythic Japanese Psych Rock Band uh, by Matt LaJoy. Um, So I love this article because it is such a pure piece of storytelling, right? And that is my favorite thing in journalism um, is just – Telling stories, like finding finding something that otherwise wouldn't be out in the world in such a complete way and telling that story. And then what do we learn from it, right? So this story pieced together about an obscure psychedelic rock guitarist, uh, Takashi Mizutani, who passed away in 2019, though the public didn't become aware of it until 2021, um, of the band Les Ralises de Nudes, who I'll refer to as LRD um, from this point on, so I don't have to try and pronounce that every single time, um, and trying to capture art through commodity. So the news event here is that a recent vinyl pressing of a live performance from Mizutani's band, the Oz Tapes, the first actually licensed and legally purchasable format of the band's music. While Mizutani was alive, he never created a legally licensable sale of his music. And there are a few reasons for this. One is that he's referred to as having a crippling perfectionism. But one of my favorite parts of the piece is how the journalist is able to convey Mizutani as an almost mystical figure of underground spirit and unconventional talent. So to read a quote here, um, Oz's unabridged versions of the last one reveal that a studio could hardly hope to contain or capture the colossal sonics he favored. LRD were after a visceral, sometimes violent impact born from unimaginable loudness. Performing with mirror balls, stupefying light shows, fog machines, and strobes, the band's live sets required no drug inducement to naturally achieve the psychedelic state. And here and throughout the article, uh, Matt makes several mentions of the Grateful Dead, which seems like one of the more like tangible ways to connect to an audience with something that they can relate here on the podcast. So um, <clears throat> he makes this comparison to something that the Grateful Dead were really well known for, which is the fact that their music much more prioritized like the live performance over the studio recording. Um, and if you don't know anything about the Grateful Dead, like they toured like nonstop. Like we're always playing live. Like we're one. Of, I think one of the most live shows of like any band or any group ever. Um, And one thing that they allowed people to do at their shows was just any person at a Grateful Dead show could plug into the, the board sound and just record their show. Right. And so there are all these like Grateful Dead live recordings out there, like thousands and thousands of like unique from all these different shows. Um, And similarly, LRD here from this story did a similar thing, but Mizutani actually, um, hated the fact that these these imperfect recordings would go around out there. Um, but because there were no legally purchasable recordings, these tapes circled massively amid the underground. Uh, the journalist even talks about how there you know being some idea that the the like unlicensed recordings were somehow sanctioned by uh, Mizutani um, and you know and as a way to get money since they had no legally re- legal recordings, but that you know finding out that that's not true. Um, but you know, this, this, this sort of network of these like underground, like unlicensed recordings 
you know, may have started with like super fans who just bring recordings to the show so they can take them home and re-listen. But of course they end up commodified, right? As more people catch on to the music and more people want to consume it, um, these recordings get passed around. Like, and like, I want to highlight on the nature of like, how these imperfect recordings contrast with Mizutani's like intentions for this very, very loud, very performance-based thing, right? So this whole economy de develops a profiting off of this music in a way that the artist never sees a penny of and never even wanted to be released in this way. And I wanted to open up this conversation by asking what you guys think or feel about the relationship between this psychedelic rock and the way it was consumed. So for some reason, due to the accessibility of streaming, relating back to the previous article, um, it feels strange to think of music that's not meant to be consumed on a personal level, uh, almost like Mizutani and LRD existed more as a performance art piece than even music. Go for Jeshma. I was about to say go for it, Ryan. I need a second to process <laughs> the question. <laughs> okay, I can go for it. Um I guess it's kind of like what happens when you lose control of your narrative, right? Like when you, I guess that's what modern, the modern like artist management music landscape is an antidote to. Like constantly having the artists out there sharing their lives, constantly having them in control of their narrative. Therefore, the label gets to decide, the artist gets to decide what people think about them. And I think this is a situation where, due to the reclusive nature of the artists, their perception is completely out of control. As you said, Brandon, like, rumours are made up that are completely contrary to the rich of the artists, you know? Um, can you repeat the question, please? <laughs> uh, yeah, let me find it again. So what do you think about the relationship between this, the, the intentions of the music, I guess, the intentions of the artist and the way that the music it was consumed? Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah, kind of what I'm getting at. Right. Their their perception is completely out of control. But what are they to do? Right. Is it for me? It's up to the artist to kind of make that sacrifice. Either you can be in complete contact with your fans and be like, "Hey, uh, here's an update on the album. Just wait, and it'll be released, and you can consume it how I want you to consume it." Or you can completely. Uh, you know, regress into the background and people are going to get hands on the music somehow. So do you want to be reclusive and have it not consumed the way you want to? Or do you want to be in the spotlight and have it consumed the way you want to? You know, it's 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 kind of a sacrifice the artist has to make, in my opinion. That's kind of the way I see it. Do you think we can ever really control how someone consumes, though? As much as I agree that social media and the change in team structuring has given artists the ability to have more input. And I think that barrier to having input on how you're presented is dangerous. But I don't think that ever changes what the perception of the output is going to be. I think that we can share as much as we want about ourselves and it might add more context. And I think a younger consumer cares immensely more about you being not just an incredible musician, but what do you stand for and what are you eating that day and things that might be both trivial but really relevant um but i also think that that individual could still be like yeah but i don't really like this or no i think that they're being performative and those opinions and criticisms are always going to be there because we can't control what other people think but i do think that sometimes you have to subtract to add and so going to live shows and sonic experiences that's something that I think maybe we're not looking for the same amount of context in, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but because we're immersed in the physical experience and the barrier to entry to that physical experience is if there's a ticket, being able to afford it, if there's transport you need to take to get there, living in a place where these types of things happen. And so then you become like enthralled in something that might be a live art piece like this, that might be designed for a listening experience, not for repetitive streaming. And I think that that's the separation, right? Like if I wasn't physically here this weekend to f see what it felt like to hold two wires and see what I sound like, would I have consumed <laughs> that genre of music nearly as much? Probably not. And so 
I don't, I think I'm in a tangential loop now, but I think that there's something about not being able to control what people think anyway. And so I think there's going to be a resurgence of more art like this that's sensory and that encourages people to re-engage with physical experiences or physical objects. It's already mm. happening, right? At the end of the day, yeah. everything crypto boils down to something physical. Everything that people are doing, like Kanye did with his listening device, I'm forgetting the name of, and others are doing with bringing records back, right? It's all coming back to the sensory experience. And so I actually think we're going to see a resurgence of lack of sharing in some capacity, by sharing more of a curated something, right? So I think I see artists that are going to start not giving into content by sharing all about their personal lives, but giving into content by sharing their art the way that they want to, which they previously maybe couldn't because of a label or an entity like that. And there is something about the not knowing and the curiosity and the mystery that makes us want to go meet them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of it comes back to, you know, the consumer, like we were talking about with the previous article. And what this story really brought up for me is sort of a reminder, or I guess like the question or the contradiction of is art made for the consumer or is art made for the artist? You know, it's almost like a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it question, right? Like if the consumer is not there to consume the art, does it mean the same thing? You know, um, Without an audience, without a streaming listing, without having something to sell and profit off of, what does art look like without that? Because, um, you know, you get the feeling that this mythic is a very good word for it, that this mythic, like, psychedelic, you know, rock performer, um, you know, was doing these performance, these, these, these live concerts, not as a commodity, but just as a, like, ethereal sort of, like, this is who he is and what he does and the audience just happens to be there and connect with that. Right. Exactly. And like all relationships in our lives, I've known both of you for maybe like two and a half years now. And there's a hundred thousand things I don't know about you or about how you feel. And every day we discover if we disagree on things or agree on things, or you teach me things all the time, even passively when I'm not answering Slack messages. <laughs> um, but I wonder if that's what we need back with music, the the grace to allow people to evolve, including ourselves, like the grace to be like, I loved that artist and I was an early adopter, but now I don't really mess with them. You know, like all, all the Drake stands losing their mind because he used some global music and they don't know how to handle it. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. You're allowed to walk away. You're allowed to be like champagne poppy is not for me. And then next year when he drops Mickey, something else. Mickey fuming right now. <laughs> fuming I mean, with listen, the headphones in. Listen, we all know that I love Drake, so that's where my loyalties yeah. lie. But if you drop something next year <laughs> that this anti-Drake, or cough, cough, Ryan, um, ends up liking, that's okay, too. We won't criminalize Ryan for joining us. I would. I would ask you to lock me up, but <laughs> that's just me. But uh, no, I see what you're saying, though, so especially about like that sensory experience, your home right? Like people kind of going back to that way, because it definitely links to the article about things just becoming more ephemeral and we're kind of losing contact with what made music great to begin with, you know. Um, and yeah, this is a, a really cool throwback in the sense that you just don't get artists like this anymore who have that sense of mystique about them. And I feel like people like Frank Ocean are definitely pioneers in that, going back to the, you do not see this person for three years at a time. You might, someone might get a shot of him at some event one time, but then three more years goes by and they drop a song and then four more years goes by and you don't see him again, you know? Um, and yeah, you're 100% right. I, I can really see the industry going direction. I think that's exciting. I think that's way more exciting than what we have right now. I just wonder how capitalism bends to that will of the artist to do that. Well, yeah, it's the direct contradiction to um, that uh, the CEO of Spotify is saying that like artists need to be, you know, the days, what would the, the exact quote is something like the days of releasing an album every two to three years are over. Like you need to be constantly producing and constantly streaming. You know, that's, that seems to be the attitude that the industry wants, or at least the side of the industry 
that profits off of that, right? Like the tech side of the industry, which is sort of the variable um, that is overpowering now that didn't really even exist back then. I think that's really funny because, you know, we manage artists, so part of my living comes from this. And something I think about a lot is some of them create an abundant amount of content and are constantly sharing and outputting, and some of them don't maybe drop something once a year. And I would consider them all successful, and I think that the thing about the constant production mentality is that's from the lens of the tech companies. And the real Mm -hmm. thing we're not talking about is it's also really hard work to build a fan base outside of the tools where the data is aggregated for you. And that's at odds with fame because mass consumption exists on those platforms. But I actually think like there's countless artists that submit to us, right? There's still artists that physically are going and giving QR codes instead of mixtapes, but that are out there trying to get their 100 fans or their 10 fans or play 100 coffee shops that year or apply for arts and grants funding. And that all has its systemic issues because it's a high barrier to entry for certain people. But there is life outside of that and making a career. Like I boast about Canada all the time, but their middle class for the arts is the best one I've seen. Um, And so I, I think that Yes, the amount of time you spend on a tech platform, which is effectively an advertising platform, the more traction you get from said platform and the more input you do, the more output you're exposed to and you're creating, right? So effectively, it's not that that's untrue, but that's always through the mentality that these are the only tools in our arsenal that we can use, that this is the only way. And it's not the only way. It just means that discoverability and fame in what is now the traditional way to be found might take you longer, you might not be in that ecosystem. It's crazy, but I know full-time musicians that make a lot of money and you will never have heard of them on the internet. No, that's very fair. Um, before we potentially move on, I just want to shout out, just again, Matt LaJoy, just like, thank you for making this article because I found it fascinating. And I don't think this is a story I'd ever be exposed to if we didn't do the podcast and if mm-hmm. you had not written the article. So yeah, um, I thought this was really fascinating. And just the opening quote about like... Um, the moment we heard the feedback on our guitar, we know our sound is going to be. It's one of the hardest lines I've heard in my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's so cool. So yeah, uh, shout out to just the article existing for sure. Yeah. Cool, cool. All right. So that was the first feedback and folklore of a mythic Japanese psych rock band by Matt LaJoy. Please let me know if I pronounced that wrong. For NPR. Folklore is a good word too. Like lots of lots of like really good like folklore and mythic both do a really good job of sort of describing like what this story is, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, and things I'd like to see more artists kind of embody. Sure. Okay, so final article, Joshima, take it away. <laughs> Snoop Dogg is building a crypto empire one NFT at a time by Murray Stassen. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, This is from a little bit ago, but I think it's really important to discuss now because in February, I think a good chunk of the community was still trying to figure out what an NFT means to them. So I'm going to ask both of you, what do you think an NFT is? Um... I'm a socialist, <laughs> so <laughs> NFTs are bad things. <laughs> I, was, I, was trying, I was trying to think of some kind of snappy, like, like, um, it is, it is a section of the rainforest that burns every 10 minutes so that someone can flex their receipt, their doggy verse coins. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Uh, no, no, a more, okay, no, a more realistic answer. An NFT is basically a um, piece of digital something that you can prove ownership to, regardless of whether or not it's copied, right? Um, and that has to do with blockchain. I mean, we can get into the whole the whole crypto thing here, but um, in, in, in short terms, it's a digital something that you can prove is a one-of-one one unique thing that someone owns. Or owns the receipt to owning. <laughs> okay, yeah, Ryan, what do you think it is? Pretty much the same thing, yeah. It's like something, uh, a digital thing that 
I guess. Yeah, what Brandon said. I don't just repeat what he said. Yeah, what Brandon said. Got it. <laughs> what What do you both think money is? Like cash. Oh shit. Uh- <laughs> um, a societal construct. <laughs> okay. Okay. Essentially, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. It's it's a thing that has an agreed upon value. Okay. What do like, you think? I mean, equity that's is? really what. Equity is stored value. Okay, Ryan, what do you think equity is? I don't know. I'm kind of stupid. (laughs) (laughs) You are not stupid, but I thought this was important because I was in Toronto a few weeks ago on a panel about Web3 and music and a couple of other things. And I remember polling the audience when we sat down because there were other Web3 professionals on there and I was speaking more from a music lens. I'm not a Web3 professional. Um, but I was like, ah, my gut's telling me 80% of this room doesn't know what the hell anything is. And we're about to talk about, like, utility usage. Like, that's not mm. it. And so I realized, at least for me, an NFT is a contract, a ticket, and access. And I think the reason it's really hard to discern or positioned as corny or nonsensical is because we're forgetting that cash is the exact same thing. It's a piece of paper that stands for something, right? It's an exchange in value, like you both said. And so here, it's not really about the board ape or the doggy coin or Dogecoin or any of those things. So these are just virtual symbols for access, contracts, proof of ownership, and sellability. And I think when we start to debate whether those things actually have any value or not because they're not physically tangible, we have to think about everything else that is not actually physically tangible, but we've assigned something physical to it, right? Like when you invest in a company or you buy into an idea, you're giving people cash and you're getting equity or you're giving people your work and you're getting sweat. It's like sweat equity. But until someone else is convinced to buy or sell that company, your equity or shares or all of that don't mean anything. And I think in music, the cool thing that Snoop Dogg has done is despite having the fame and the discoverability across these platforms, by removing them and asking of audiences to engage with them in a way that allows him to live financially well and his team to live financially well, he's doing just that he's taking his perceived value and channeling it into a dollar amount and that means something and i think that more and more the conversations i have about music and crypto we're not having that conversation that way we're talking about like what effectively is what silicon valley does right a bunch of dudes come together around a startup and tell enough of their friends that that thing is cool and you buy in and that's what happens with nfts enough bros tell you that something is cool and you buy in. But what Snoop Dogg's doing that I think is interesting is he's saying, I already have a fan base around my music and I want to keep putting out music. And I want Death Row to be able to put out music. And so all of you, let's make your equity in your perceived value of me, in your belief in me or my music or our music or the nostalgia of the music and see how many of you will put a dollar amount to that and make it livable. And so now, whether people like him or don't like him, don't want to consume death row music, do want to consume death row music, there's a whole side to this about the climate effects and accessibility. But I think that, like, that's what's actually happening here. But every other article is just like, Snoop Dogg sells doggy coins and uh, wants his users to make artwork. But what do you both think about all that? I see what you're saying, right? It's yeah, like the lengths an artist will go to to monetize themselves in a landscape where monetization of music is very scarce, for sure. And I think you said, yeah, uh, asking his audience to put a dollar amount to how much they think his art is worth, his legacy is worth. Um, I guess my only issue is like, just put an actual dollar amount on it rather than like the crypto thing, right? Like, <laughs> I feel like you could just skip the step and just price you know, the artwork higher, price the album higher, the way that Milo did it last year. He just picked a number for him to, um, for his album to sell at. That's not a regular album price. And people paid it because people like his music. And I I 
just the way I work. I feel like you get more out of that if you get like a vinyl out of it, if you get a print out of it, a cassette, something like that. Sure, there are some people who think that see NFTs and uh, crypto as equally valuable. I'm not in that position. Fair enough. Like, um, but yeah, I think that's the thing, right? It's it's about monetization of your work, which is fair. But I think it can be done in a way that I see as more morally upstanding, personally. Yeah, absolutely. I can't. Um, I, I also want to preface that I'm not advocating for people to engage with or not engage with NFTs or crypto or Web3 and whatever that thought cycle might be. But I do think it's it's worth us recognizing that, like, at least for me in my South Asian echo chamber, Crypto is talked about by very few people with a very high access level and understanding of its utility. But now that knowledge is more willing to be shared because of the internet and making knowledge sharing accessible. Whereas a lot of communities in a cash society are left out of many things because they're inaccessible to them. And that knowledge or the systemic oppression associated makes it impossible for them to garner that knowledge. And I think at large, the internet is changing that, but I hear you. There's pros and cons here. Brandon, what do you think? Well, I mean, it calls back to like the intentions of cryptocurrency was to create like a tradable currency that exists outside of like government influence. Right. In a lot of ways, um, it's a way to try to escape from like the U.S. government's like and the, you know, the value of the dollar being like an overpowering thing on um, disadvantaged countries around the world. Right. So there's a very pure idea to it. But then, you know, like with a lot of things, you, we, we soon find out that like, oh, well, if we have an unregulated currency, what's going to happen is abuse. People are going to abuse it. Um, people are going to scam people. You know, like that's naturally what's going to be the profitable method of doing it. But I like how this article sets up Snoop Dogg's investment into crypto as like investment. That's what it is. I think you use the term equity, um, which I think is a really good term here. And the way that the article is set up is it, it actually buries the lead about the crypto. Um, it establishes all these previous investments that Snoop Dogg has made. Like, I didn't know that he invested, what, $500 million in Reddit or $50 million in Reddit or something like that. Um, and like, you know, 500, 500% returns on his money. Like he and they, they also break down like his marijuana investments um, even prior to legalization in California as being you know, like when you first read those news, it's like, oh, haha, like, of course, like Snoop Dogg and, and Wiz Khalifa have their own brand of weed, right? Like, you know, that you think of that as almost in a way, like as marketing for their music rather than as like business investment, like, you know, very strong, like entrepreneurship. So the way that it sets up these prior investments and then to bring in like this large number that uh, Snoop Dogg has invested in into cryptocurrency, like really had me convinced like, oh, like I got to get in on the ground floor. Like I need some doggy coins. Like I need to get like when they come for the student loans, like I need to escape into the Snoopverse, you know, like it, it, <laughs> and it, it really like sets up how this is the future. Right. And we need to find a way to to make it equitable and to exist in that space, um, because it is what's going to happen. You also use the term Web3. Um, which is interesting because I've been hearing a lot about that lately. I've been listening to like a lot more uh, news podcasts. And one of, I believe it was Consider This, which is an NPR podcast, um, was talking about Web 3 in terms of where we fucked up with Web 2, right? Um, Web 2 being the growth of like social media and this whole network of like interconnectivity, right? Well, with Snoop Dogg's investment in Reddit, you see Snoop Dogg was in on the ground floor of Web 2, right? This like expansion of the social media space. Um, and in, in terms of this NPR podcast I was listening to, like when it comes to Web 3, Web 3 implies like an even more interconnected world than what we currently see through social media. Um, it's a metaverse, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a digital space. It is the existence of these cryptocurrencies. And a lot of that talk has to be with like, are we going to do better with Web3 than we did with Web2? And when it comes to crypto, what, what, is, what does doing better mean, right? Does it mean regulating it? Does that take away from the intentions that it was meant to be made as an unregulatable thing? And if it is regulated, 
who holds the power of that regulation and who benefits from that. These are all questions that like we should be thinking of as we get further into this space. Um, but based on this article, like I just want to follow Snoop Dogg's lead. Like <laughs> he, he seems like he's got the smart investments. Like he's clearly like making a lot of money for this. So um, I also yes. wonder if this like American mentality of operating on precedence needs to change because when I was on that panel as someone who's much more well-versed, her name is Rand. She works in podcasting and digital media and Web3. She said to me and to everyone in the room, she said on the panel that, you know, the things and concerns about accessibility, regulation, legal, climate change, the effects on the environment, that's something actively being discussed in the Web3 communities as it's being built, right? And because it's more diverse than historical startups and other communities with a lower barrier to entry, these concerns are taken much more seriously and raised much earlier because the people involved have ethical responsibility. And that's not to say we know everyone that's involved in something and what does being involved even mean right now? We can philosophically debate that too, but... I do think that that's something I hadn't thought about, right? Because I think we live in a society right now where we do have historic proof of things that will happen a certain way and we ignore it anyway, right? Like we know the planet needs us to do things and yet we live in societies that are like, mm, who cares about dirt and water and air? Um, and so if this is a community that's saying, hey, we're paying attention to these concerns, I can't say I know what the regulation is going to look like, but I can say I'm intrigued that they're trying to build with mitigation in mind because in my lifetime, I haven't seen communities and countries build with mitigation in mind. I've seen them react. And so I wonder if there's something there, but Snoop seems to have enough vested interest in the different things that are happening. And maybe that speaks to like what happens with music consumption, right? Maybe it's like if enough of us talk about this mushroom music, a hundred other people are going to go listen to it even if that's not something they'd be into. Um, so I, I, I really, like, the article is so short and sweet, but the point of that was to be like, listen, perceived value or real fandom or real audienceship, if that's a word, still generated <laughs> a meaningful amount of money for them. And so if Snoop Dogg can get to the point where it's like, I don't need a million people's money, but I do need 10,000 people's money, maybe in the future of the metaverse, more artists will be focused on their communities, their discords, their Patreons, like they already are, if that's cash, if it's crypto, and care less about the fame and discoverability or mass numbers they'd need to make any semblance of a living in the current standard. Mm. Yeah, and that calls back to what Ryan said about like artists sort of assigning the value that they see fit to their materials and sort of like, in a lot of ways, it's almost a response to like, the absolutely abysmal pay that artists get from streaming, right? You, you have to branch into the other avenues. The first thing that they did was really focused on touring, which I think was actually mentioned in the, the Pitchfork article as well, that mm -hmm. like that was a main thing, like a main shift because of the tech companies getting their slice out of the, the music industry was that artists needed to invest more in touring. Um, so in a lot of ways, like what Stoop Dogg's doing here seems almost a natural extension of like, finding ways to make money off music that's not just the music, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I struggle to see it all as something other than artists um, running towards where capitalism is shifting to. And I'm going to go for Mickey Hedderback. If the artists, uh, <laughs> you know, you talked about Snoop Dogg saying rather than needing a few million people's money to being, needing a few 10,000 people's money, let's get rid of capitalism and make sure he doesn't need anyone's money to live a good life but i guess that's a that's a lofty ambition for sure um but yeah well, ryan for president gone. ladies and gentlemen ryan for president <laughs> when civilization collapses all i know is that i will be buying food and water with my doggy coins in the snoop verse <laughs> i'll be wandering the deserts of the midwest trading <laughs> snoop dog nfts <laughs> Ah, uh, gonna love that American landscape. I'll be out in Germany, walking into the store, taking my food for free and going home <laughs> and eating it. <laughs> in my socialist ideal. Anyway. Um, 
<laughs> that was Snoop Dogg building a crypto empire one FT at a time by Murray Stassen from Music Business Worldwide. And that, folks, was our episode. Um, please get in contact with us. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, central underscore source. Let us know. We'll get a poll. Capitalism or socialism, guys? You decide. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, Brandon, would you want to send out our usual call? Oh, yeah. Um, if you are listening to the podcast and you are a writer or you read some smaller, lesser known writers, send us your stuff. Send us their stuff. Um, we do like to make an effort to try to feature a variety of different publications, different writers. You know, the purpose of this podcast really is to shine a spotlight on good journalism, on good writing, um, some video stuff as well, some audio stuff as well. But a lot of that stuff that needs the spotlight um, doesn't get it because it's not seen as much. So that's something we can help with. And also you can help by leaving us a review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts because that increases the visibility that we are able to share with the writers and publications that we cover here. So do that. <laughs> so true. Can you say something, Jashma? I was just going to say it's kind of funny that we just debated consumption and creation and discoverability and then asked <laughs> everyone to engage with us on digital tech platforms. But listen, we out here trying to survive. You know what? Okay? Or, or don't. So you're, or don't, you're, because we don't yeah, care, because guys. we're true artists. <laughs> don't. <laughs> If listening to us makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, then keep listening. Um, but if there are brands and small businesses we can amplify as well that are doing meaningful ethical work in different music communities, I'd love to start hearing about that. I wonder if there are things mm. going on that we're not exposed to. Um, and, and keep sending articles. If you're the writer, send it yourself. That's how I got here. And I don't know if here is where you want to be, but like that was pretty cool. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And with that, here's the end of the show. I've been Ryan Gore, I've been joined by Brandon Hill and Josh Madeira, and we'll catch you next time on Such Source. Stay sassy, friends. This episode of In Search of Source featured Brandon Hill, Ryan Gore, and Josh Mordera of the Central Source Creative Collective. This episode was edited by me, Joy Taylor, Fifth M Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Barsty. Thanks to Chill Records for BTUs. This has been a Central Source Fifth M Podcast Network production. Thanks to Barsty, Chill Records, Central Source Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs>